It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Oil prices are up. Facebook stocks are down. Poor Mark Zuckerberg lost $20 billion. We'll, we'll pass the hat for him later on. Toymaker Mattel trims 2,200 jobs in the wake of the bankruptcy of toy retailer Toys R Us. And trade wars dominate the news. Time now to take a look at Wall Street to Main Street to your wallet. Joining us is financial advisor and the host of the nationally syndicated Money Insight program, Market Wrap, heard Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. on AM 1220 KDOW. It's always a privilege to have Mo Ansari with us. Mo, good to have you with us. It's always my pleasure, Craig. Thank you so much. We'll get into some of the particulars of the market in the moment. But first of all, let me get sort of your the 30,000-foot-high perspective on this. You've been in the world of money management, investing, and retirement planning for many, many years. You've seen multiple up and down cycles. This current bull run, which celebrated its ninth birthday back in March of this year, some people are wondering, how long can it last? Do we need to think about buying a birthday gift for it when it makes it to 10 or or will it make it to 10? I think, Craig, we are going to make it to 10. Bull markets do not die of old age. They usually die of uh, interest rates going up too much, uh, some kind of outright uh, outside shock to the system, or some kind of structural problems, which uh, we do not have. Interest rates are creeping up but they're not at a point where they're really starting to hurt the economy. Overall, as you take a look at the fundamentals, uh, we know certainly that unemployment numbers um, have been historically low. I think uh, we've reached some 25-year lows. That's very encouraging. Um, The Fed has, as we're all aware, painfully perhaps so, made some adjustments, largely because of concern of inflation. And and I, I guess it could be argued, is it fair to say that the interest rates, quite frankly, have been ridiculously low? And so sort of doing some reverse quantitative easing here was a natural direction to head in? That's exactly what they're doing, uh, Craig. They're letting interest rates go up to the natural level. They've been kept artificially low by the government intervention. It's not just here, but it's globally that we've seen this. Uh, The ECB, the European Central Bank, has been doing this, and they've been buying bonds and putting money into the system. Uh, The Japanese have been doing it for about 20 years, so it uh, something that we did, and now we are reversing that. So the punch bowl is being taken away, and that is uh, what concerns a lot of people. We have a market uh, that has it's really two different stories. One is uh, is profits, earnings per share are skyrocketing right now. The benefit of the tax cut, uh, the stimulus uh, from the budget spending, the deficit budget spending that we're seeing. So profits are twenty percent plus earnings per share for the S&P companies as a whole, which should drive the market dramatically higher. But then we have the cross-current of the trade war and tariffs. That is keeping the market in check. Consequently, the market goes up, it goes down, and we're in a range of about 300 points for the S&P, 25.50, the February low, and the 28.72 high, uh, which is the January high for the market, 
And we're up about 5 6% for the market overall for the year. Uh, which, at the end of the day, is really a, a recent or a decent ROI, is it not? I mean, you know, we, we, we like to be able to think that the party continues forever and that housing prices will go up 20% a year and I'm going to get 10 or 15% return on my portfolio every year and interest rates are going to be at zero all the time. I mean, there's a, there's a good degree of sort of a, a fantasy island <laughs> mentality about that, isn't there? Well, everybody likes to go to Disneyland and enjoy the, the fantasy world there, but that is a fantasy uh, world, and we have to keep that in mind. And that is the same thing with the markets. The expectations sometimes get carried away, and that is what drives these markets. One is uh, the greed factor, where everybody, when the markets are going up, okay, I'll make 15% in the market, 20% on my house, and I'll live happily ever after year over year. And then we have a bear market, and everybody starts saying, oh, my God, the world is ending. And reality is somewhere in the middle. That's where usually we are, and that's where we are right now, where we are sort of muddling along. If we can get these trade uh, uh, tensions reduced, I don't think they're going to go away. And we need to rebalance trade. Let me say that's right off the bat. The, a lot of countries have been taking advantages of, uh, of us for a long time. So we need to rebalance that. But how do we go about it? How long will it take? How much, what price do we pay in the short term to get the long term rebalancing? Those are questions that are really hard to answer. So that's what we will see. If we can somehow reduce those tensions like we saw yesterday with the EU, that could be uh, a very big plus for the market. If you're just joining us with us today is Mo Ansari, host of Market Wrap, heard Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. on AM 1220 KDOW. I'll mention, by the way, that Mo is going to be in town on Thursday, August the 9th, and we're available to make personal one-on-one appointments. So if you'd like to sit down for a free portfolio review with Mo, simply pick up your cell phone, dial pound 250, and at the prompt say, talk to Mo. That's pound 250 on your cell phone and at the prompt say talk to Mo or you can also easily make your appointment online by going to compact.com that's c-o-m-p-a-k dot com well let's talk for a bit about the trade wars we know that there's been a lot of verbal sparring between China the European Union certainly our neighbor to the north Canada I have to wonder how much of this is just talk, how much of this is strategy. You alluded a moment ago to the notion, and I think everybody would acknowledge, no matter whether you're conservative or liberal, Democrat, Republican, rich or poor, the trade imbalance between the United States and some of our trading partners like China has been way out of whack for far too long. So the notion of bringing a little bit of sense of sensibility back into our trade relationships certainly makes perfect sense. Is this... Is the current reaction by the market and a lot of businesses simply getting used to the initial pain of that readjustment? Do you see this overall as an effective strategy that ultimately will not only benefit the markets long term, but benefit American industry and workers long term? I think so, Craig. I, I think we've been, we've been focused too much on the negative, uh, all the trade war and how it's going to cause job losses and all of that. That's what we've heard in the media. One thing we, we have not really talked about, and so people, so many people are missing, I believe, that if we do get a rebalancing of the trade uh, of trade with all of these countries, where they have been sort of exporting to us on on just on a free trade basis and we have not been able to export to them on a free trade basis. They have levies on, on our products, and we do not. As the president said the other day, look, uh, with the European Union, 
if you don't like tariffs, we don't like tariffs, let's just remove all tariffs. We'll remove all of them, and Europe, you remove all of them. And the Europeans said, oh, no, 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 we can't do that, because they have a lot more tariffs. I think that's really where we are right now. I think if we do get some kind of rebalancing, I don't think we get every, everything that we are, we are asking for, but even if we get a portion of what we do, that'll be a lot better uh, than what we've had, and that will be a big boost to American businesses, and we can protect our intellectual property, our R&D, that we spend billions and billions of dollars coming up with new products, and, and we can protect those products and get the benefit of that R&D for our corporations and for our workers. Is there a need here, perhaps, too, for the perspective on such matters to, to maybe mature a little bit? And, and here's why I ask that question. We've heard for the longest time, Mo, that outsourcing costs American jobs. Certainly, the president has part of his platform and currently the debate that we're speaking of related to trade also centers around job loss. But I have to wonder if we're kind of missing the boat here, that we're taking a simplistic approach to those issues, meanwhile not recognizing that things like AI, artificial intelligence, robotics, some of the changes in in, in manufacturing overall that are very um, earth-shattering in some respects, certainly if you look at it from the historical involvement of labor in the manufacturing process versus the trends that we see today, isn't that the area where we should be more concentrating on and recognizing that that the face of industry is just simply changing as it always has? Absolutely, Craig. I mean, it is very, very simplistic to say, okay, globalization has caused. There's a whole bunch of factors that have caused uh, us to lose jobs and factories to move uh, to other parts of the world. The other day, I was talking to somebody uh, from Mexico, and they said, oh, my God, this is absolutely terrible. I said, what is it? And he said, these low-cost labor markets that are causing us to lose jobs. And I sort of I couldn't help but laugh because we were hearing the same thing when jobs were going to Mexico. This is a global trend that we're seeing as communication becomes a lot easier, transportation becomes a lot easier. Uh, the labor markets have gone global where we can produce goods anywhere in the world and have them shipped and ready for delivery here in a very short period of time. But I think it's much more complicated than just saying, oh, globalization has cost jobs. But that is, it's easier to explain. And it's easier to make that a uh, an election sort of uh, thing to talk about. But uh, it is a lot more complex than that. You're absolutely right on that. You've got to believe that the buggy manufacturers of the late 1800s and early 1900s must have been terribly angry at the likes of Henry Ford saying, you're going to put us out of business. We need to pass a law and ban the manufacturing of these terrible horseless carriages. It's just the natural ebb and flow. And I suppose to your point regarding globalization, uh, this, this is a pillow that's been ripped wide open. The feathers are out there in the air. A good gust of wind has blown, you're never going to get them back in. So is it a matter of changing then our attitudes, the way we see globalization, the impact on industry, the impact on the markets, the impact on how we do business? Absolutely. And that one of the biggest things we have to also think about is the impact on our portfolios. We, we, we can't have our daddy's portfolio, put it this way. You know, that, uh, we, what the portfolio we had 50 years ago, if you had GE, you were so happy because it was the industrial giant. Uh, 
and now it's uh, it has been absolutely withered away. So you have to be able to make changes in your portfolio. And I'm not talking about trying to trade it every day. That is a fool's errand that some people try to do. But at the same time, you have to make mid-course corrections. You have to make adjustments. As the world changes, your portfolio has to adjust to that. As the times change and technology changes, you have to change your portfolio and adjust to the times. And that is something that we try to emphasize to, to our clients and our customers that you have to sort of have what I call a proactive portfolio, not a hold and hope portfolio, the buy and hold strategy. I call it the hold and hope strategy, where you're holding and hoping one day you're going to break even. I like to have portfolios that are just with the times, not hyper trade, but uh, do make mid-course adjustments. Right. Now you wait to tell me that I should sell my stock in Enron and Southern Pacific Railroad. <laughs> Mo Ansari is with us today from Market Wrap. Mo, by the way, is going to be in town. If you'd like to have a personal one-on-one free portfolio review, it's yours for the asking. While appointments are available, to contact Mo and schedule your appointment, simply on your cell phone, dial pound 250, and at the prompt, Say, talk to Mo. That's pound 250 on your cell. And at the prompt, say, talk to Mo. You can also easily schedule your appointment online by going to compact.com. That's C-O-M-P-A-K.com. A brief time out back to more of our conversation with financial advisor and talk show host Mo Ansari right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back. We're visiting today with Mo Ansari. He, of course, is a financial advisor, been in the world of money, money management, retirement planning for many, many years. And he's host of the popular nationally syndicated radio program, Market Wrap, heard each Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. on AM 1220 KDOW. Every afternoon, Mo and his guests analyze the events of the day, the impact on the markets, and ultimately the impact on your wallet. Mo's going to be in town. We mentioned this earlier. He'll be in the Bay Area on Thursday. Thursday, August the 9th, and be sitting down one-on-one with a handful of listeners. So if you'd like to make your appointment for a free and complimentary portfolio review with Mo, simply dial pound 250 on your cell phone, and at the prompt, say, talk to Mo. That's pound 250 on your cell, and when you hear the prompt, say, talk to Mo. You can also make that appointment online at compaq.com. That's C-O-M-P-A-K.com. Mo, I want to pick up with a comment that you made toward the end of the break. You were talking about this notion of the need for active money management versus passive and how that retirement today looks nothing like it did 20, 30, 50 years ago for mom and dad or grandma and grandpa. Uh, Let's face it, at the end of the day, the cost of living is much higher. The percentile of contribution to our income needs at retirement of Social Security is a diminishing number. Things like pension plans, virtually non-existent anymore. And so it really takes a a, a strategy that's a lot more than just throwing a few bucks into an IRA or a 401k uh, in your 20s and hoping by the time you reach your 60s that something positive has happened. But when you talk about active money management, what exactly does that look like? That's a great question, uh, Craig, that how do, what is active money management? And that is where some people think that day trading is active money management, which it is not. 
active is sort of making adjustments, taking a look at your portfolio. First of all, doing the fundamental work and making sure the stock you're looking to buy has got a good PE, has got all, do all the fundamental work. Then you look at valuations. Is this stock overpriced? Look at Facebook. Uh, everybody said it's the greatest thing in the world. It is a great company, but was it at $217 at the right price? No, it's $175 today. So uh, that's where you have to be able to look at the valuations. Once you do that, then you look at the stock and say, okay, this is a good price. This is a good stock. It's a good company. It's got free cash flow. Then you combine that with technical analysis, look to buy. Once you have bought it, then you have to look at how over a period of time reevaluated has it become overvalued at times stocks you buy maybe you bought uh, microsoft at 25 dollars a share is it overvalued at 110 today four or five years later uh you might say well maybe it is maybe it is and then you do the evaluation again and if it is then you start to trim it and take that money off the table and start to put it in other stocks that are looking good and buying the cheap keeping your cost in your portfolio low is another very critical thing to do is to make sure you do not buy mutual funds which are very expensive that you buy individual stocks you buy individual bonds and you have somebody who can do the research for those individual stocks and bonds and be able to move them when they start losing their momentum. What about a lot of the shift that we've seen into ETFs? Certainly, uh, the, the lower cost of management fees makes it very attractive. I, I'm surprised at this point that, frankly, with the popularity of ETFs, that they haven't had enough downward pressure on the, the mutual fund industry to really force it to reevaluate how it operates and ultimately how it passes its costs along to shareholders. I think it already has done that. We've seen a tremendous amount of shrink, shrinkage in the mutual fund business and, and astronomical growth in the ETFs. So ETFs are wonderful if you're looking to buy a basket uh, of a certain stock area or a certain. Uh, but again, you have to look at do you, does how does that fit into your portfolio, and that is where you have to look at your risk number. And by that, I mean have a scientific approach to look at it and say, okay, this is how much money I have. How much can I emotionally and financially handle? in the next six months if it goes up and down. Why six months? Because we found that to be the time that it takes for the average investor to start to panic if the markets are going down. So if you look at that number and say, okay, if I can handle a 10% drawdown in my portfolio over six months, you put that in in what we have come up with and we look at this and it gives us a portfolio number. It says, okay, you're, you've got a risk of 62. When you take a risk of 62, then you have to have a portfolio that matches that risk number. You can't have all Tesla, which it would be at a risk 99, or all uh, cash, which is a risk number one. You have to have the right risk number that matches you financially and emotionally, and then make sure your portfolio matches that risk. And that's a very difficult balance to achieve for an individual that is largely uninitiated by all of this, isn't it? And I ask that question, Mo, because it's not just the balance of your, your the sleep factor at night. You know, how much risk am I willing to take and still be able to go to bed at night and, and not stay up all evening worrying about what's happening with the markets in my portfolio? But then there's that gentle balance 
up against things like timeline toward retirement and what that nest egg needs to look like when you reach retirement. So there becomes multiple factors in here that it's not just a matter of, you know, leaning over the cubicle uh, to the guy next to you and saying, hey, Charlie, what stock look good for you? And, you know, you're, you're, you're 60 and ready to retire in, a, in 10 years. And, and the guy next to you is 34 and he's a young hotshot day trader and is telling you about all this high risk stock that he's in and he's making a ton of money. You think, wow, I got to get a piece of that action and suddenly that whole balance is thrown out of whack. So true, Craig, and that is exactly what you need to determine, where you are, what, where are you are in life, what point, uh, how old you are, how much risk. And some at, at 34, emotionally, somebody might not be in a position to take a lot of risk, and at somebody at 60 might be financially and emotionally uh, could take a lot more risk. So it depends on individuals, where you are in life, and that's why it's very important to have what, what I call a money management team that manages your money, and then a very separate financial planner. All they do is develop the roadmap to get you from point A to where you want to go financially, and those are two separate things that two separate entities have to do, or it's the same entity, but two different divisions within the firm have to do, and that is why we have a money management team for each account, and then we have a certified financial planner, a CFP that has 10 or 15 years of experience, dealt with hundreds upon hundreds of hundreds of clients uh, with different financial circumstances, and we can bring that kind of uh, that experience to bear to give you the results that you're looking for. And you really have to also, in that degree, take a lot of the emotion out of this, don't you? Because let's face it, everybody sees where uh, Amazon is at today. And I remember 10 years ago, we thought, oh, this company's never going to last. They don't They don't own any buildings. How can they possibly turn a profit? And now, of course, all the Amazon stockholders from 10 years ago are laughing all the way to the bank. But that, that sense of emotion, that, that greed and fear that you referred to earlier, really tends to get in the way if there's not that intentional effort toward two degrees of separation between your your financial life and your emotional life. Craig, let's uh, be realistic. Money is a very, very emotional subject, and people get very, very emotional and do some do some absolutely crazy things when it comes to investing. And I've seen it over the last forty years uh, that we that I've done this. So what we try to do is try to give them all the information. The more information you have, the better decisions you can make, and that's what we try and do: is educate the clients. Make sure they understand where they're headed, what it's going to look like when they get there, and what they, what they need to do uh, to, to make those decisions. That is the hard part, and that is how we work with our clients to develop that sort of solution for them. Let me mention, by the way, that Mo is going to be here in the Bay Area on Thursday, August the 9th, and be sitting down for personal one-on-one appointments with individual listeners as uh, his time is available. So that means the sooner that you call to schedule your complimentary and free portfolio review, the better off you're going to have in getting a chance to spend some time with Mo. In order to schedule that free portfolio review, simply dial pound 250 on your cell phone and at the prompt say Talk to Mo. That's pound 250 on the cell phone. And then at the prompt, say talk to Mo. Or you can also make your appointment online at compact.com. That's C O M P A K.com. 
Now, Mo, I know everyone listening to this conversation, and maybe even a few of the folks that tune into your program, Market Wrap, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m., think that as you sit at the desk there, you have in front of you a bank of computer monitors, you're watching what's going on at the NASDAQ, what's going on at the Dow, what's going on at the S&P. And then, of course, in front of you, you have the large crystal ball that tells you exactly what's going to happen in the next few minutes and maybe as far out as several years from now. (laughs) We know, of course, there is no crystal ball, but I want you to rely upon your years of experience, as you take a look at the current market trends, someone like you does have the ability to get a sense of where things are headed. Rearview investing, of course, is is fool's folly. What was good yesterday is not going to be good necessarily today or tomorrow, Um, hence my reference to Enron at the end of the last segment. But as you see things moving forward, given some of the negotiations related to trade, given some of the advancements in technology. Where do you see the markets headed? I think we are headed higher. I I think we are going to go through a lot more volatility, a lot more trepidation as we get uh, more talk about trade war, how more problems that we could have, and how we could see uh, more issues, and that will create some anxiety. Uh, But overall, I think these issues are going to be resolved, and once they are, the market should be higher. I would not be surprised to see the S&P at new highs b- uh, before the end of the year or higher than that. And we could end up with, we're up about five or six, we could end up with high si- single uh, digits, low double-digit returns this year. Next year becomes much more complicated as we see interest rates start to bite the market a little bit, bite the economy. How high rates go, I think, is going to determine where we go next year and the year after. For people that remember March of 09, and they look at the numbers today and say, my goodness, this is unbelievable what's happened over the course of nine short years. And there's that sense of fear and trepidation that, well, you know, there might be something on the horizon. There's talk about nuclear war. There's the Iran thing, North Korea. Who knows what's going to be happening here? So, you know, any any pin could come along and pop this bubble of a major geopolitical event. And so I, I'm really going to watch this thing every day so I can time it and get out at the right time. I heard you say on your program just a couple of days ago that it's not timing the market, it's time in the market. As we wrap up our conversation today, kind of take us a little bit deeper as to what you mean by that. Craig, it's really the time in the market. By that, I mean if you buy a good stock at a good price and you stay with it. There's an elderly gentleman, he lives in Nebraska, he's done it over the years, and he's made a little bit of money, if I could be that, and the name is Warren Buffett. So if you do that, you will come out okay. But uh, trying to buy this and sell this and try to anticipate what Kim Jong-un is going to say tomorrow or what's going to happen with the trade war or what is going to happen with the next tweet, who knows? And that is something that people so much try to do and drive themselves crazy. Having a sound plan and sticking with it over time, making adjustments when things do look a little shaky, but you don't want to try and uh, and make those changes on a daily basis. Having a calm, cool, calculated approach to the markets over a period of time is what gets you the results that you're looking for. And demonstrating that over long periods of time is Mo points out the Dow Jones Industrial Average finished out the year December 31st of 1978 
at 820 points. And now we're in the 25,000 range. So anybody who was wise enough to get in then, stay in, actively manage the money, uh, is probably another Warren Buffett today. So it's certainly some sound advice. I will mention again that Mo's going to be in town and will be available to make personal one-on-one portfolio reviews. So for your appointment, call now. You can do so by dialing pound 250 on your cell phone at the prompt, say, talk to Mo. Again, the date will be on Thursday, August the 9th here in the Bay Area. To meet personally one-on-one with Mo Ansari, dial pound 250 on your cell and say, talk to Mo at the prompt, or you can make your appointment online at compaq.com, C-O-M-P-A-K dot com. Mo Ansari, Market Wrap, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. on AM 1220 KDOW. Mo, it's always a delight and an education to have you join us. Thanks so much for the time. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Craig. It's always my pleasure. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It's a topic that we've discussed before. Um, Some, I think, troubling statistics that ought to catch the attention of all of us within the organized church in America. And that is surveys. They've been done by a variety of groups. Probably the most recent, most reliable, in my opinion, is that done by uh, George Barna and his organization that finds that an alarming percentage of young people who um, grow up in church, attending Sunday school, they've been baptized there, they've uh, been active in children's church all through their young adult years, and then they reach their later teens, high school, largely collegiate level, and it seems that once they graduate from high school and move into college, they move into the dorms and out of the pews. And the question is why? What's going on in the lives of young people today where they feel perhaps that the church is not adequately addressing their needs? Well, a new book has been written that helps to address this very issue that takes a look at some key strategies that's not necessarily, you know, fancy entertainment programs, things of that sort, but rather an attempt to sort of um, take a look at the church and most specifically, how we can do a better job at not only keeping young people in the church, but allowing church, and most importantly, Christianity at the core, to be relevant in their lives. Joining me now is one of the co-authors of a new book called Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. Jake Mulder, in addition to being co-author, is Director of Strategic Initiatives at Fuller Youth Institute. He is, by the way, a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary and has also served as a ministry director with Youth for Christ and also with YWAM. And Jake, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. Hey, thanks, Craig. It's good to be with you. When we uh, talk about solutions, of course, it it helps to get a bit of a handle on ascertaining what the problem is. Uh, You know, everything from vacation Bible school, children's choir, youth church, all of this. Um, Youth have always been an important component within the church, and I've also seen studies to suggest that uh, there's a greater likelihood of people continuing um, in their faith for the entire length of their life, um, the younger that they make that decision or commitment to Christ. So we know that youth outreach and ministry is critically important, and yet in recent years there has been this trend, this trend of young people reaching a certain age and saying, okay, I'm no longer compelled to go by my parents, I no longer feel compelled, and they're done. Why? 
Yeah, exactly, Craig. In many ways, as you said, it's it's oftentimes, unfortunately, into the college dorm and out of the pews. And as you cited George Barna, the research from their organization often points to the fact that 40, 50 percent of those young people who grow up in the church end up drifting from God and the faith after they graduate from high school. Um, there's a lot of other negative statistics we could look at and, uh, regarding the church and where the church is at. Pew Research had released uh, some results recently where 78% of the U.S. adult population used to identify as Christian. Now that's 71%. We could look at other negative statistics like uh, 18 to 29-year-olds make up 20% of the U.S. population, but they actually make up only 10% of U.S. churchgoers. Uh, so as you indicated, lots of bad news. There's, there's a lot that we could point to of what's not working, but that's where we're so excited about this new research in the book, Growing Young, because we decided, what if we looked past the bad news? What if we looked beyond the problems and the struggles? And what if we actually studied churches that are thriving in their ministry to teenagers and young adults? And in doing so, um, and you've looked at churches, of course, uh, across the country, across denominational lines. You've looked at uh, churches that were mixed, churches that were uh, predominantly minority, churches that were predominantly white. Any trends that you see, any commonality with those churches that seem to be doing a quote-unquote better job at keeping or retaining young people? Yeah, very much. And before I mention a couple of those, one of the things I, I do want to mention were some of our surprises of what we thought we might find as a commonality that we, in fact, didn't find. So as we began the study, we wondered if we might find that churches that are large would be more effective with millennials, with teenagers and young adults, or and maybe it's churches that have a big budget, or it's churches that have been recently planted, or it's churches that have just this off-the-charts cool quotient, or uh, they, you know, uh, their worship <laughs> is like a rock concert, or they've got a laser light show and fog machines, or a hip, cool young pastor. And we can with confidence say from the churches that we've studied, uh, it was not about any of those single things that led to effectiveness with young people. Interesting. One of the things that strikes me about this, and I mentioned this in my introductory remarks that we used to do, historically a good job is the church in providing uh, places for young people. But I wonder if there's a degree to which maybe that has backfired on us. And I I pose that question because um, one of the things certainly, and if we compare, for example, young people that get involved in gangs— yeah. Uh, typically, what do we see? We see young people coming from broken homes, uh, single-parent families, divorced families. We see young people who largely will get involved in gangs because there's not only a sense of community there and a sense of power, but a sense of belonging, a sense of feeling like you're, in a, in a way, in a surrogate family. And I wonder if we have come to perhaps, in this day and age, made a mistake by putting so much emphasis on in a sense, isolating young people because it's children's church, it's youth ministry, it's young people's outreach, that somehow we want them separate and apart from what the rest of the adults do, that in a sense, have we, rather than embracing them so that they get a sense of being in in that greater community, rather isolated them? Yeah, Craig, I think you're very much on to something that in many ways lines up with our research. Uh. So what, what we've landed on Uh, as kind of, in a nutshell, our study, we've landed on six core commitments 
that we think are essential for the whole church. And I say whole church because not just the children's church, not just the youth ministry, not just an independent young adult ministry. These are six core commitments that are vital for the whole church culture to buy into. And uh, one of those six, in fact, is something very close to what you mentioned. We've come to call it that these churches prioritize young people and their families everywhere. So they're prioritized in every area of the church. And while that sounds uh, intuitive in some ways, or even obvious, what church would say we don't prioritize a younger generation? We found that there's often a strong difference between uh, the rhetoric or the language churches use, perhaps their intentions to prioritize young people, and uh, what it actually looks like to prioritize young people well in practice. Well, and I guess there's also a difference between prioritizing versus ghettoizing. Very much, and unfortunately, what we've often done, and I want to emphasize that that this has been done out of the best of intentions uh, in so many of our churches. So it's not been done out of neglect. It's not been done out of ill will. It's out of a desire that we want to reach and engage children, teenagers, young adults well. But as you say, we've often segmented them off in their own corner of the church. If, If a church has a large enough budget, perhaps we've built them their own youth room. We've hired them their own staff member as a youth pastor. The problem is that many teenagers, they might go through an average year of their ministry calendar and hardly ever interact with adults who are outside of their age range. Well, the other issue, too, is, and I always thought this, when uh, that part of the service typically very early on came and the children were, quote-unquote, dismissed to head off to their own church. And I thought, I wonder how many of them um, quietly wondered to themselves as they're sitting in youth service, what's going on back in the adult service that the adults don't want them to hear? Uh, I, I mean, you know, there, there's always that sense that, well, you're trying to block me from something or, or, or leave me out. And, uh, you know, children see enough of that when parents say, well, you can only go to certain types of movies. You have to be in bed at a certain time. We understand that part of this is good parenting. But part of it, I think, lends, lends itself to that sense of, of being um, not only isolated, but almost and, and again, I have to concur with you at, at this level, Jake. It's not done with malintent, but I think the unfortunate consequence is that some young people, as a result, may feel as if they're being treated like they're second-class citizens. Yeah, and if I can share an example from one church that stood out in this area in our study, it's, it's First Baptist Southgate. They're located in South Los Angeles, and uh, they're a predominantly Latino congregation. Uh, originally, the church was predominantly Spanish-speaking. And what happened in this congregation is the parents, the grandparents, had, had moved to the United States, spoke exclusively Spanish. Well, as they had children, as they had grandchildren, uh, those children and grandchildren were growing up in an English-speaking environment in Los Angeles and spoke almost exclusively English. So as they got a bit older and they were looking at their worship service, the church was faced with this decision of (laughs) we can keep our worship service in Spanish so that the grandparents, the parents, understand what's happening, and we could start a separate English ministry somewhere else or on the side or in another part of the building uh, in order to minister to the children, the grandchildren in the church. But as they reflected on that, they just realized that wasn't who God had called them to be as a congregation. 
and they reflected, if we were to do that, it's only going to drive a wedge between generations. Uh, and so, you know, bless them, the adults, the parents, the grandparents in the church said, even though this is going to cost us something, and something very important to us of our language, we are willing to go about the process of integrating young people into our service, of letting English be a portion of each of those services. So we saw situations when we visited this church where you had uh, a grandchild and a grandparent, and the grandparent did not understand parts of the service that were being given in English, but was willing uh, to go there and was willing to do that because of his deep love for his grandson. And the church as a whole embraced the young people in that church. So uh, just one example of what that looked like in practice and often what it costs both generations. But yet that sense of coming together in unity and not driving a wedge, but rather um, embracing uh, is obviously, as you're suggesting, makes a big difference. There's another dynamic to this that I want to talk about after the break, and that is with so much emphasis in our culture on young people and youth. And let's be honest about it. As you get older, don't you look back? Come on now. I mean, I'm... Jack Benny's age plus a number of years, and yet there's the sense that, gee, if I could only go back to my 30s, if I could go back to my, well, I won't go any further. We want to recapture that. We have a sense that there's something about vigor and vitality and energy and enthusiasm that that is inherent to, to being younger. And yet with so much emphasis on such things, it seems as if they're at least in areas where the church, rather than embracing that and giving credence to that and acknowledging that, instead somehow demonizes it. We'll talk about that next. Our conversation today with the co-author of Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. Jake Mulder, our guest, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to The Conversation, our visit today with Jake Mulder, co-author of Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. One of the things that comes to mind, and I referenced this, Jake, just before the break, um, there's so much about our culture that we have a longing to want to go back and be younger if we're older. There's a lot of celebrating of uh, what it means to be young, and yet there seems to be a sense, and again, this is not in all churches, but in some churches, that we, we kind of isolate young people and we we suggest that, well, they're not ready, they're not mature, and therefore they're not as valued in some ways, and perhaps at least that's the message that young people are receiving as the older adults. What of that notion, and, and is the church missing the boat here. Um, I mean, certainly maturity in Christ is an important thing, but are we missing the boat in some ways? Yeah, yeah, Craig, I really think we are. And two more of the core commitments that we discovered during our research uh, that characterize churches that are able to grow young really speak to that well. One of them, which I can unpack in just a second, uh, is that these churches seem to empathize with today's young people. Uh, and the other one is that these churches fuel a warm sense of community. Uh, so let me go ahead and speak to the idea of empathy first. Uh, what we discovered in these churches is that so often it's easy for a church or, or really any community to have misunderstanding, especially between generations. And in the church today, what that might look like is 
um, people pointing fingers at millennials and saying, well, millennials today, we all know they're entitled, they're lazy, they don't really want to go to church, they don't really want to follow Christ. And that's not the, that's not the default position that we saw in the churches in our study. Um, if anything, we found that, that the adults in these churches look to these young people and see that they're going through a significant journey that they're asking questions, just like all of us are, about identity, questions about who, who they are, questions about belonging, where they fit, and questions about purpose, what difference it is that they make. And like I said, all generations today are asking those questions, but for young people today, given how fast the world is changing, given different developmental realities, uh, these questions are really on the forefront of their mind. Well, not only that, but I think there's a way in which we're maybe kind of missing the point here, because oftentimes, if you talk to older adults, they'll say that, well, you know, compared to younger generations, you can go back to the great generation that fought World War II, and and so on. They say, well, you know, we had a sense of meaning and purpose and drive. These young people today don't care about anything. And yet, if you sit down and talk with them, they're passionate about protecting the planet, dealing with global warming, saving the whales, all of these sort of, um, for want of a better term, do-good kind of exercises that all go back to the central point of wanting to leave a mark, wanting to leave the place, the planet, better than it was when they found it or inherited it. And I I just have to wonder if if we couch the impact of the gospel in terms of the ability for young people to be able to leave a mark and look at the the absolute indelible mark left by Jesus himself, I think young people could look at this and say, wow, I want to be a world changer, and you've just handed me the keys. Yeah, that's exactly what we found in our research. But the difference that you're talking about, it, it means that in our churches, we have to move past assuming we know where people are at, and not just older people towards younger people. We're also advocating for we need to move past the assumptions that young people have for older people, uh, which that's empathy. It's the ability to step into someone else's shoes and understand where they're coming from. But to move back to something that you said uh, earlier in our conversation, when we have a church that's so separated and segmented by generations, and different generations never interact, well, it's hard to practice empathy. It's hard to move to that deeper relational understanding. But, yeah, I think how you phrased it, it that lines up very much with what we found in our research. And, you know, largely it's so sad because um, there's much that both generations can learn from each other. Older people can learn a lot from younger people, and there's an awful lot certainly from an experiential standpoint, to be sure, that younger people can learn from older people if we just set aside some of these misconceptions and be able to actually dialogue with each other. Yeah, is it okay if I tell you a short story about uh, Bill Wallace, one of the heroes in our study? So uh, we had visited a congregation that was thriving with younger generations, and we were in a room of 20-year-olds, and we asked them, what is it that you love so much about your church? And one of them mentioned something about the worship service, and a few heads nodded. Another one mentioned something about the mission trips, and a few heads nodded. But then one girl sitting over in the corner said, you know what I love about our church? It's Bill Wallace. And all of a sudden, there was a lot of energy in the room. There was excitement. Every head was nodding. And uh, 20-somethings were saying, you know, I love Bill Wallace, too. He's so much of what makes our church our church. They told us how Bill uh, stops them in the hallway, asks them what's happening in their life. He knows their name. He 
attends sporting events. He attends the dance recitals, other activities of the middle school students and high school students in the church. So uh, we just assumed and we pictured, well, Bill Wallace, he must be the 22-year-old youth pastor in that church who's just got plenty of time on his hands and goes and hangs out at kids' events. And they actually corrected us and said, no, 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 Bill, <laughs> Bill's not 22 years old. Bill is actually 76 years old. Uh, and Bill has made an intentional decision in his retirement years that he is going to invest in the young people in that church. He knows their name. He cares for them. He shows up, and they love Bill Wallace, and they love their church because of the way he invests in them. So one of the stories that we've been telling of, of just something that we, we love about our research, how different generations are being connected, and it's like you said, we think that young people need the church and the church needs young people. And when the two are together, that's a beautiful thing. And, you know, at the end of the day, that story of Bill that you share so wonderfully illustrates that this is not complicated. This is not expensive. It's not complex. Because I know people listening to our conversation today, especially as we began, said, well, I know what you guys are going to talk about. And we, we, we can't afford that kind of money. We can't build that kind of program. We can't hire that kind of talent. But wait a minute, though. Yeah, there might be times and places for programs and approaches, although if you listen to this program with any frequency, you know that largely I don't buy into that. Most importantly, it's the notion that taking the time to care, the ability to do what would appear to be the inconsequential little things in life that has such a tremendous impact, how many of us that have the ability to be another Bill Wallace as Jake just described, if we'd only take the time and make the effort. The book is compelling. There's much more to learn. And so if you've been captivated by our conversation today and you'd like to go deeper and learn more, I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the book, Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. It can not only be revitalizing to the young people in your church, but revitalizing to your church overall. The new book, by the way, newly published by Baker Books and available in bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get more information on the web by going to churchesgrowingyoung.org. That's churchesgrowingyoung.org. And our thanks to co-author Jake Mulder for being with us today on this edition of Lifeline.